Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. A big appreciation to and welcome to anyone who is listening for the first time. And thank you so much to those of you who are returning listeners. I want to start by thanking two of our audience members, Tracy Carver and Paul Finn, both from Austin, Texas. Both are people who wrote in separately after listening to my interview with Kevin Johnson who runs a really great flotation center that's based in Austin. And it was so nice to hear from both Tracy and Paul, who both shared how much they're enjoying the show and why they've benefited from it, as well as also making suggestions as to possible topics that I could cover, as well as potential guests for the show. So just wanted to say Thank you so much to Paul and Tracy. Really appreciate taking the time to drop me a line and would love to hear from more of you. Not only, you know, regarding positive feedback if you're enjoying the show, but truly would love to hear suggestions or constructive criticism because I want, you know, these conversations to better serve the people who are listening to them. And so would really love to hear from you. And if you are so inclined, whether you're a regular listener or whether this is your first time, please drop me a line. Uh, you can do so at hackingtheself at gmail.com or on Twitter at hackingtheself. And if you prefer Facebook, Hacking the Self Facebook page is also a great way to do so. So thank you so much to Paul and Tracy and hope to hear from more of you. I'm truly grateful to anyone who's listening to this, whether I hear from you or not, just that you have this curiosity and interest in growing as a person and becoming more conscious and developing and evolving as a human being for the benefit of yourself and other people in your life. You know, one person I've been listening to a lot recently is Jordan Peterson, who's someone who I think is an absolutely brilliant, staggering intellect and definitely an outside of the box thinker who's gotten me to think about a lot of different things. And one thing that Peterson talks a lot about is, you know, before you go off and you try to change the world or you start lecturing other people, you really need to take a hard look in the mirror and get your own house in order. And that's a message that really resonates with a lot of Eastern philosophy. I think that's very consistent with a, a very Buddhist perspective, which is focusing on the importance of transforming yourself, which really resonated with me. That's something that I always liked about Buddhism. And I felt frankly was a contrast to some other religious traditions, which emphasized that they had the right answer and wanted to convert other people, which always, you know, I was raised in one of those and it, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And I think there is so much to be said, whether it's we're talking about religion, politics, just personal ethics, just to pause before you just give a mouthful of, of advice to someone else and take a hard look in the mirror as to whether you're actually living those things or if you've already given that advice to just go home and reflect 
on the extent to which your actions are really consistent with your own values or the advice that you're giving other people. So I think that focusing on our own personal growth, you know, it, it's important to not only get too wrapped up in ourselves, which I think anything could lead to, whether it's, you know, certain esoteric meditation practices or too much therapy, you know, if you get too much inside your own head, it can become a narcissistic venture, which isn't a good thing. You know, that's why relationships are important that keep you out of your head. That's why a purposeful job or any kind of work, certainly volunteer work, uh, even can help you, you know, get out of yourself and keep you connected to the importance of serving others. And I think all of that's very important, but I do think there's a lot to be said for getting your own house in order, as Peterson says, or simply just taking a hard look in the mirror and really thinking about improving yourself before you preach to others. So I appreciate anyone who, who shares that desire for self-improvement. And I'm someone who has eclectic interests and I'm, I'm open-minded. And I'm also, though I love reading philosophy and abstract ideas, I also, I'm someone who's very pragmatic and I'm of the mindset, whatever works is great. And I'm more focused on results, I think. As I grow older, I'm, I'm a lot less interested in ideologues and a lot more swayed by pragmatists. You know, Mikey Siegel, who was on this show, who is an MIT engineer by training and a consciousness hacker, talked about evaluating certain practices, whether it was meditation or psychedelics, ultimately by their efficacy, whether they work or not, you know, and that kind of engineering approach has a real strong sense of, of pragmatism that I really appreciate and that resonates with me. And I like the way that Mikey phrased it. As someone who wasn't an engineer, who's not an engineer by training, uh, that just intuitively still makes a lot of sense to me. And so developing, exploring different hacks and just figuring out kind of what works and recognizing that different things are going to work for different people. And that's why I like exploring things on the show. You know, I might try something out and it might not totally resonate for me, but it might work better for one of you. So whether that's floating or a specific piece of consciousness hacking technology or a meditation technique or a religious text or a diet or nutritional or exercise regime, whatever it is, I enjoy exploring those and sharing those with others. And I think just finding whatever works for you is important, but having that pragmatic bent and being open to different experiences and mindsets and techniques is really important. I think a lot of us can get very stuck. Mary Taylor talked about this when she was with Patabi Joyce. You know, Mary was on the show. She and her husband, Richard Freeman, and her are very famous Ashtanga teachers. Patabi Joyce told her that she had a very stiff mind. And I think that's so true for so many of us. You know, we get very stuck in particular ways of thinking. And it's true across the political spectrum, religious spectrum. You know, those of us, you know, you might think we're more open-minded because we're liberal or we're less dogmatic because we're secular, but the mind gravitates towards certain belief systems and certain ways of viewing the world because that gives it a sense of comfort. It gives it a sense of stability to say, oh, now I know how to interpret the world. 
Now I know how to make sense of it. And that gives me a sense of comfort, security, certitude. But that's a trap itself, you know, and it's something to be very cautious of, to be a little less sure of what we know, to be a little more open to different ways of viewing the world. You know, I think many people who profess open-mindedness are often fall very short of living up to that claim. And we all can be guilty of that at times because the ego is very, very strong. But that's why we practice, whether it's yoga or meditation or anything else. That's why we practice. So anyways, thank you for indulging that reflection on some of the recent conversations I've had with guests. And uh, I want to bring you to my guest today, who is someone else who's really steeped in tradition and wisdom and has studied with, not only studied, I mean, he's lived and practiced and just steeped in one of the greatest spiritual teachers, in my view, of our time, who is Neem Karoli Baba, who those of you might know as the guru who Ram Das wrote about in Be Here Now, who's someone who's really just this phenomenal, beautiful human being who I would encourage anyone who is interested in, even if it's just to have a sense of curiosity, to read more about him. You can read Miracle of Love, which Ram Das wrote, and there's some other great books such as Love Everyone, which is a a collection of stories about Neem Karoli Baba by his Western devotees. And so I'm going to be speaking with one of those devotees today, Raghu Marcus, who is also the executive director of the Love Serve Remember Foundation, which is dedicated to preserving and continuing the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba and Ram Das. Raghu spent two years in India with Maharaji, which is another name for Neem Karoli Baba, and with Ram Das. And his background is in music and transformational media. He's originally from Canada, from Montreal, before he went to India, and then went on to have a successful career in the music industry in California. Raghu is now based in Asheville, North Carolina, where he is the director of the Love Serve Remember Foundation. And he's also the host of a podcast called Mind Rolling, which appears on the Be Here Now network, which offers a bunch of different podcasts for wonderful spiritual teachers, including Raghu and Ram Das, Jack Kornfield, Krishna Das. So that's a great resource to check out the Be Here Now network. And you can find Raghu's podcast, Mind Rolling, there. And so with that, let me cut to my conversation with Raghu Marcus, where we really go in depth on the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba and Bhakti Yoga. And this is why I'm releasing this conversation after my talk with Richard Freeman and the Bhagavad Gita, because... This conversation with Raghu really builds nicely, thematically, on my previous conversation with Richard. So if you haven't listened to that conversation with Richard and you enjoy this one with Raghu, I'd highly recommend that you check that conversation as well with Richard on the Bhagavad Gita. So thank you so much for tuning in. And now I give you my conversation with Raghu Marcus. 
Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hackingtheself. Raghu, let me begin by thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Sure. Glad to. Happy to be here. It was wonderful meeting you in person and at the Ramdas retreat. And I thought that you'd be an excellent person to have on the show because, you know, I'm doing a series where I'm talking to several different Dharma teachers from different traditions. And recently, we just had Richard Freeman on the show, who's talked about the Bhagavad Gita in depth, including Bhakti Yoga. And so I thought our conversation might be a wonderful way for you to give a perspective on bhakti yoga and also maybe to explore some of the similarities and differences between bhakti and Buddhism, because I know that's a big part of the retreats that Ramdas organization runs and that you'll be doing in, in May with Roshi Joan. Yeah. So that's sort of where I'm, I'm heading with this, but I want to start out just telling folks a little bit about who might not be familiar with the path of, of bhakti and Neem Karoli Baba, if you could just give them a little context. And perhaps we can begin with, you know, kind of the foundational definition of, of bhakti comes from the Gita that a lot of people know about in terms of it's the path of devotion. But I'm curious how you would kind of elaborate on that pretty basic definition. It's the path of devotion. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. You hit it. So what does that imply? It implies duality because the individual soul wants to merge with the oversoul, you know, putting it in most simplistic terms. So there is an object of that devotion and using different methodology is to become one with the object of devotion. So that's all classical stuff from the Vedas and all in the Gita, you know, the Bhagavatam, which is where the Gita is. The two big his, um, holy books in, for the Hindus are the Bhagavatam, the story of Krishna, and the Ramayana, the story of Ram. So now for us going to India, we had no idea about any of that stuff, nor did we care. We met Ram Das and we were like, okay, whatever you got, we want. And it's this the old man in a blanket, lead us to him, you know. And, you know, for the first time in my life, when I met Ramdas, I heard someone completely honest and someone I trusted. So I just followed that, you know, just absolutely no diversion whatsoever when I met. And, you know, a few of us were like that. And even though he said, I can't tell you who this being is, nor can I tell you where he is. Eventually, we wore him down, you know, and in my case, he said, just write to me in India when you get there and I'll see where, where he is. Anyway, eventually I, I got there. So to say the least, I mean, I knew what, you know, I knew about Hinduism. I mostly knew about it. Who did I like? It was like uh, Mayor Baba. You know who Mayor Baba is? <laughs> no. No? Oh, no, God. Please school me. Oh, he's so great. He, there was this big pictures of him with this beautiful smile on his face. And underneath the caption was, don't worry, be happy. And I was like, yeah, that's it. That's all I want. Uh, don't worry, be happy. I get it. And so that was like my introduction to any kind of guruish figure. And uh, I mean, he was 
a one of his main guru was Shirdi Sai Baba. Shirdi Sai Baba is like Maharaji, a Siddha, like gone beyond. No I, no nothing, no reason to be on, on this planet except to service to people. So he was a, a disciple of, of Shirdi Sai Baba and a great being. And the only other thing I knew was Hare Krishna. We used to go there, you know, the Hare Krishna people, right? They had nice chanting and you went over there and they had great food on Sunday morning. We used to go over and, and spend time and eat. That's it. I didn't know anything else. And when I got to India, meeting Maharaji, there, any of this stuff around like bhakti yoga, yoga of devotion, like before I went there, I went to this other guru's uh, ashram named Swami Muktananda. Do you know oh, I know him for sure. Yeah, yes. Swami Muktananda. Yeah, because many Westerners knew him, met him. And, and anyhow, everybody was touching his feet, right? And I was like, oh, God, what is that? I'm not touching anybody's feet. You know, I was like, flip. And then I met with Ramdas. He came shortly after and I said, you know, what is this thing of touching the feet? And he said, it's, you know, it's just you're honoring God within that being. So the God within you is honoring the God within him. And if you have a problem about it, it's just good stuff to work with. So I was like, oh, okay. I went back the next day, same problem. I just couldn't get my mind out of it. It was like, oh. So, you know, that's traditional bhakti yoga, you know, the honoring of the guru, touching of the feet. Although in every tradition, anywhere you meet a holy being, you really know it and you, you are at the very least respectful. So I don't know what was wrong with me, but I was having a horrible time with it. Right after that is when I first met Neem Karoli Baba. So he came out, I, I was in the ashram with a few people. Ram Das wasn't there, actually. And he came out of his room to sit on his bench, his tucket, as he came out the doors. Let me tell you, I went right down on the floor, touched the feet. I mean, not. E I didn't even think about it. I mean, this was just beyond any mental thought. What Beyond thought. It was just beyond thought. You know, and there was the, something magnetic about him. No, it was, he what was couldn't it? even give a word to it. I knew, I knew him all forever before this life, every other. I, and I was not into anything. I just knew I knew him. Oh yeah, you. It was like, and then the next thing was, oh shit, that's what Ramdas was all about. I knew it was just coming from him. And then the, the third thing is, oh my God, there's nobody there. I mean, you knew that, you know, how you always, you meet a person, there's stuff going on back and forth, even if it's a teacher or, you know, a high being. I had met a couple, before I met Maharaji, I, I had met a couple of beings, you know, amongst them uh, Muktananda and so on. So, but in this case, they're absolutely one billion percent. I went, oh my God, this is, it was like a computer just did the right thing. There wasn't any, no motivation, no, I mean, something you can't even imagine in that sense to have, see a physical manifestation of what that is. So to me, that's like beyond bhakti yoga. I wasn't thinking about anything. It just, it was a gigantic happening of truth that I blended with and I, that was, that was the end of it. I mean, yes, as the years have gone on, I do practice bhakti yoga by virtue of I, you know, chanting is a big part. That's a, a big part. Of course, you know, the Hare Krishnas are the essence of that, right? Just chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. That's all you need to do in this age, the Kali Yuga, the age of destruction, 
the only thing that can carry you to the other shore is chant the name of Hari. So I use that, not just Hare Krishna, you know, lots of stuff. But I mean, for us, it's a Hanuman Chalisa, actually. That is our main practice. And Hanuman is, yeah, total emblem of service, compassion, love, and selflessness. And that's what Maharaji gave us, was Hanuman. And he used to say Hanuman and Christ are the same thing, so it's the same. So that's Bhakti Yoga. But at the same time, he led us into Buddhist practice particularly Vipassana meditation. And it's where we met many of our Buddhist friends who you saw. Uh, who was at the retreat? Was Jack or Sharon? Yes, uh, Jack was. Yeah, Jack. And Trudy. Jack and Trudy. So Jack Cornfield and he and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein brought back this tradition, which we ended up spending a, doing a lot of retreats in that tradition. And, you know, Ramdas says it well. He after doing a, a like months of meditative practice under this tradition, he found that what it did for him is it it allowed him to even open up further further in terms of devotion, in terms of the heart opening. And so at the same time, we also, many of us, got into uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And in fact, you know, there's one one of us that was from, from back then, Danny Goldman. He has a new book that is fabulous around meditation called Altered Traits. He's very close to the Dalai Lama. So that was also part of it. And what that was giving us, in in my mind, a way to frame some of the realities that we enter into when we step on the spiritual path. The Tibetans particularly have a, 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 a an incredibly crystalline framework of what reality is. And so we did get, and we have been involved there. I mean, even the uh, Sharon Salzberg, for instance, I know she's, she takes a lot of the Tibetan teachings. So the result of it is the perfect blend of heart-mind is our practical day-to-day sadhana of Ninkaroli Baba devotees. Not for everyone, but for many of us, especially that were there at that time that have had Buddhism blend with our other practice, that is very true. And you experienced it yourself, Adrian, at, at the retreat, where that tremendous force of love, unconditional love, gets very present there, which is just Maharaji, big Maharaji. And at the same time, there is some real wisdom that is being shared and transferred. So, yeah. That's a wonderful answer. And I'd love to take that and build on it a little bit. So one explanation that I heard, or I should say just comment when, I think this is at one of the retreats recently within the last year or two, I heard it on Duncan Trussell's show when Roshi Joan Halifax was at the retreat. And she talked about her understanding of Neem Karoli Baba. And I think she was saying it based on people's stories. I don't know if she herself had actually met Neem Karoli Baba. No. I don't think she had. Yeah, it sounded like based on stories. So she said when she heard people describe Neem Karoli Baba, and of course, for those who don't know Roshi Jones, she's coming at this as a, a Zen from a Zen perspective. She's a Zen abbot and who takes no Zen prisoners. abbot. She is one of the most incredible teachers <laughs> that I ever met. 
She is. I'm a wonderful fan of uh, a big fan of, of Roshi Joan. And she said when she heard descriptions of, uh, of Neem Kroli Baba, it was of someone who really just embodied emptiness. Actually, and, and that's what you sort of alluded to in your answer yeah. right there. Yes, that's true. Uh, let me tell you what happened. It was Duncan and I, and you, you do remember it, but I'll tell you the detail. I said to her, you know, you've been around, she's very close to Ramdas forever, right? So I said, you've been around Ramdas a lot. So you're always hearing about Maharaji or seeing his picture. You know, it's, it's always there. I thought, what do you think of him? And she just stopped for a minute. And then she just said, when I look at his eyes in the picture, I see emptiness. And I said, wow, you know, it's funny because Ramdas himself one day, actually with Roshi doing a teaching, a, a webinar, he just got into the middle of Maharaji's, just he put himself right in the middle of that spacious, unconditional love feeling. I mean, love is such a tough word because it doesn't really say it's this, this thing is composed of so many different things, so many qualities that we call it unconditional love. It's easy. And he was just in that vibe. And then he just kept repeating, yeah, he had, he was totally empty. He kept saying Ramdas. And that is our experience of Maharaji. There was nothing in there whatsoever. It was just, there's like these molecules just being made up of the fabric of what we call the divine, however we term that. So then, you know what she said? She said, but you know, you have to give up, you know, the duality thing eventually, right? She said, and I said, Roshi, that's easy for you to say. You've probably done another billion lifetimes that, you know, of processing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not there yet. I'm saying I'm going to have to stick with duality. And she laughed and said, no, you're no. Anyhow, that is an apt uh, description. That's why Maharaji, at one time, they called his ashram a non-dual, which is Advaita. Uh, Hanuman temple, which is so like oxymoronic, you know, it's an oxymoron because it's Hanuman is the emblem of devotion and you're calling him non-dual. And that is really the most apt description of the coming together of bhakti and Buddhism. It's an interesting comment. Part of the way I read that too is, is not even so much simply a dualism versus non-dualism debate, but that sounds specifically to me like a Zen perspective. Because, for example, I've studied a bit of non-dual Shaivite Tantrism. And, you know, a big thing in Tantras, which is very much non-dual, at least some of the, the schools that I'm talking about, and there's still very much a need to focus the mind on an object, you know, a mantra or a deity or a yantra, because there's this elemental form of the universe, this inseparable state of intelligence, of consciousness and energy, of sound and light. And that's embodied in the mantra or in the yantra, the deity. So I, I sort of read that as not only a dualism versus non-dualism, but specifically a very Zen or kind of Advaita Vedanta perspective where the mind doesn't need anything to focus on. Yeah. You know, I have to say that is a classical statement that you've just made. Absolutely. In her case, she's beyond that. I think that she really totally understands the bhakti part and its relation to who we are and who we've been around, you know, Ram Das and Ninkaroli Baba. I just think she's just 
out and out right. <laughs> and the only difference is, in my mind, I would say, I didn't say this to her, but I would say it to her. Well, that's Maharaji's problem. I'm happy to go whatever way he makes a path for me to, to go. And that's where her Zen-ness comes in, where she she really is happily opened up to the mystery so that she's comfy there. She really is. That's why I say she's one of the greatest teachers. She's really comfortable there. She doesn't have fear of the unknown. She doesn't have fear of impermanence. She really does have intrinsic experiential understanding of emptiness. So from that point of view, I think uh, it's a little different than making the statement you made, which is absolutely true. But I think she's actually beyond that. I believe it. Having heard her talk, I suppose I was channeling what I thought my teacher might say. I've studied quite a lot with Sally Kempton. Yes, yes. And so I've, I've heard her kind of make that yeah. point that mantra isn't simply a beginner's practice, but, you know, it's yeah. mantra is the deity. It is the ultimate. It is. Yeah. You know, another connection with Zen, I have to say, when I read stories of Neem Kroli Baba and I took your advice and I, I read Love Everyone, mm. the store, a collection of stories about Neem Kroli Baba from his devotees. And I've also well, been Westerners, reading Westerners, only Westerners. Westerners. Yeah, which is way different than Miracle of Love. Right, and I've read which I've read as well, and I've also been reading By His Grace, yeah, Dada's account. Yeah, and I have to say, reading these accounts is it's a it's phenomenal. B it it's totally beyond comprehension and totally just beyond any grasping of the logical minds, which is something that I can really relate to from Ramdas. You know, he's someone who was very much living through the intellect, which. I confess to doing as well. And Ramdas at this point is not living through the intellect. No, no, no. When he first got into Neem Kroy Baba, when he was oh, a Harvard okay. professor. Oh, right. and, yeah. 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 He was right. very much in his head then. Yeah. Very in his head. And, you know, when I read these accounts of Neem Kroy Baba, he sounds like a walking Cohen, you know, like he's a, he's a trickster. He's playful. He's a mystery of, of sorts and all these different things he would do were sort of like a koan, you know, in a Zen school. And I'm curious, in your case, did you come to this as someone who was naturally, would you just have described yourself sort of more like Ramdas as very much intellectual or more intuitive? And, and was that a big leap for you to kind of encounter that? No, I was not an academic. I was more a gut person. You know, I do things based on intuitive stuff. And But, I mean, really, when we got there, it's poetic to say that, like, a Zen master and koans that blew your mind and all of that. He did blow our minds, but it was more simple and direct than any kind of koans. It was he demonstrated that he knew everything about us, past, present, and future. And once you started to realize that, your mind cracked, and you st you could no longer hang on to your identity with your mind and emotions. And when you did, it was very unhappy. And of course, that was a game changer, right? You just absolutely have no ground to stand on that had anything to do with who you were before you arrived there. I mean, as soon as I sat down, he said, 
it so happened, this is one just little dumb thing, right? It's the first thing. But as soon as I sat, I sat down the first day I saw him with maybe, I don't know, four or five, six people and a translator. And the night before, one of those Westerners I had met was the girlfriend of the guy I hired at a radio, a rock and roll radio station, which is where I met Ram Dass the year before. And I couldn't believe she was there because she didn't seem to have any interest whatsoever in going to India. And there she is. She was like the girlfriend of one of the other guys. I'm like, what are you doing here? This is nuts. I mean, literally, she lived around the corner from the radio station with her boyfriend, one of the DJs, and I saw her all the time. But she never evinced any interest in anything around spirituality. And there, there she is. And we're in Kenchi, where I met Maharaji up in the Himalayas. And so we, we're just, after he sits down, we're just sitting there. I'm sitting right next to her, right? And I'm from Montreal, right? That's where we knew each other. And he looks at us and he goes, you two friends from Montreal, from Canada? He didn't say Montreal, he said from Canada. And I'm like, yeah, right. How did you know that? You know, it was my beginning of like holding on to something that was safe, like questioning this maybe, you know, like Ramdas said in, in Be Here Now, when he told me what everything he knew about my mother and her death, I had a CIA moment. Oh my God, they're after me. <laughs> they found me, you know, that kind of, so you have that paranoia and then it just goes on on a day-to-day -day basis, one thing or another to everybody demonstrating that, you know, you are not your mind, period. Forget about it. Okay. So if you want to call that a con, I guess it, <laughs> it was a major and what he did, he did it to everybody, absolutely everybody. And not just things that were happening in the moment. It wasn't like mind reading. It was things that happened when you weren't even thinking about it. Or it was, did you do this and such and such a thing two years, you know, a long time ago? And, and you don't remember it. And then the next day you go, oh, my God, yeah, I was thinking, you know. Or, or future, he would do stuff with telling people what was going to happen to them in the future. It's just stuff like that. So you, you absolutely, you know, all miraculous stuff. So you were stopped, we were stopped dead in our tracks and no longer able to identify with ourselves the way we did before, period. That was over. So that was Zen Master Deluxe. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess that's part of what I was alluding to in terms of confounding, you know, the logical mind is, I mean, the stories about them, obviously, defy the laws of physics on a number of levels. I mean, there are many stories of him reading people's minds. There are stories of him being in two places at one time. And so on the one hand, you know, what makes this different from me compared to other accounts, like you hear about people performing miracles in the past is, and I say this as someone who's pretty skeptical. It's like, this happened quite recently. There are a lot of different accounts. There are accounts from people who are reputable and learned. There are accounts from people that I have spoken to personally. And I'm a skeptic, but I'm also, I think there's a certain point where you have to, being open to evidence means also being open to the idea that there are things that can't be explained. And if there are all these different accounts, there's something to that. But I, I guess I'm open to the idea. I guess it's still very, and I know Duncan's talked about this a lot. It's for people who haven't met Maharaji, there's still maybe one missing step 
if you haven't experienced that personally, and maybe it's just simply you have to surrender and, and that's faith. And that's, you know, something that I'm still struggling with. But I don't know if you have any particular advice to people who haven't met him personally and want to believe or do believe, but still there's some gap there. Believe what? Believe that all those things happened and believe that that's possible. But, you know, I mean, these are literally things that are absolutely define the laws of physics. I mean, these are major things. We're talking about people being in two places at one time, reading people's mind. Yeah, you know how many people in India read people's, you know, uh, ba- sadhus and babas can read people's mind? Do you know that Sai Baba in India used to transfer from a warehouse charms and bracelets and the boot, you know, sacred ash? He could regurgitate. I've seen him actually in a movie, but regurgitate a lingam on Shivaratri, which is coming up in the next week or two. I mean, it's nothing. Maharaji, yes, he, beyond that, you know, appearing in two, he did things that aren't doable by the usual sadhus in India that have power, spiritual powers. But you know what? Well, let's go back, because when I met Ramdas, when I heard him tell his story, right, I trusted him. I trusted what I heard. He was so honest about his foibles. and You know, you know, I'm sure you've heard, and I don't know, your listeners, you can go back and listen to Ramdas's early stuff, certainly before he had the uh, stroke, but more to the point, you know, really early, which you can find on Ramdas.org, his story of his, you know, meeting Maharaji, his story of what happened to him at Harvard, and then he met Maharaji, what happened after. But such honesty and such wisdom around our stuff, quote unquote, that he was like, like the Christ of the teaching. In other words, he laid himself out there, bared himself so other people could feel comfortable that it's okay. We are all skeptics. We are all have fear, separation. We have all this stuff in us all the time. And so when I met him, I trusted him. Simply, As soon as I heard him say what he said around what happened when he met Maharaji. I trusted him. And I guess it was my karma that this was something that I was that moment in this lifetime needed to happen. And it happened. And then I went off to India and met Maharaji. That was all. That's not an accident. And and, uh, I must have done a couple of good things in previous lives. I mean, that's also Karma and reincarnation are part of this whole thing as well, not as an intellectual thing, but as a real thing, like you experiential thing. And that's part of this as well. When you talk about faith, it wasn't faith for me. I mean, eventually I met him and I looked in his eyes. I had 100% trust. Everybody knows what trust is. You trust somebody and you, it gives you your power back in a way that you can trust your own intuition when you you have that in front of you. And so your listeners and ours, and I'd say the same thing all the time. You just, there isn't, you can't force anything to happen. You can't say, okay, I really want to believe that this is real, that there's a human being that can do stuff that's beyond physics. And forget that. Just think about one thing, which is just a little bit of trust that like you, Adrian, if you, you met you came to the retreat, you met Ramdas, right? You met a bunch of us. You certainly experienced that feeling of wide openness and many people in that same spot. And in that way, it's 
you know, that's miraculous as well. And I'm sure you have some trust that there's something that you experience that you can be open to. And definitely, yeah, definitely. So then that's the point at which you go, okay, there's something here that I really trust, and I'm just going to let myself open, and I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to skepticism is skepticism. It's okay. Cynicism, that's fine too. And just see what happens and just have an open relationship with it. And then you're you're able to sort of flow and and not get stuck in in the mental stuff of I can't believe those miracles. And then you you know you met me. Of course, you met Ramdas. You met me. You I don't know if you met Krishnadas, but you certainly were you know with him with the kirtan with his stories and all of it. And you probably go, wow, okay, these people don't seem to be bullshitting. You know, they're pretty practical. You know. And very pragmatic. Yes. So then there's that creates another opening. And basically, it's not about the miracles. It's about that moment in that retreat with a bunch of people that are just wide open. And there's, you know, the feeling of the divine presence is there. The presence, just call it the presence, forget the divine. There's presence there. And that presence is no different than when we hung out with Maharaji in India after a couple of days at that retreat. Just because there's so many of us that are of one mind, of one point, one heart, and we share that. And, and I mean not just, I mean Jack, Trudy, everybody. And it's, a, it's around love. And again, a shit word, but that's all we got. And you just continue to build trust, or it builds in you. You don't do anything. And then that trust turns into, you know, a faith that you are absolutely being taken care of, that everyone has a guru, and not necessarily Neem Karoli Baba, but everyone has a guru. And if you are sitting there and in that thing in, in the middle of Maui, there's a reason for that as well. But yeah, trust that we are all absolutely being taken care of. You sort of alluded to it a little bit at the end there. I'm curious, in your view, what's the distinction between trust and faith, if there is any? I mean, my own experience is that trust is still has some, to me, conditionality involved. You know, it's still a little bit cautious. You've opened up and, and you had the trust that's thrust you forward. It's even perhaps connected you to, as I said before, trust in your own intuitive process. Faith is impossible to think of. There's no thinking with faith. It's beyond identity with mind and emotions. And there's no parts to it that to believe. You can't believe. You can't engender it. It just, it is. Faith is. And it's another lousy word because it's, it's knocked around with our Christian Judeo religions that either have faith or you will be torn apart by the devil, you know, that kind of thing. So it's it's really got a nasty connotation too. But my experience of it is it's totally beyond anything that you can try to do or engender or anything. I think the thing, the, the word, the next word that I use, that's a prominent part of our path, it's called grace. And that's a word that's also way beyond any kind of rational mind. And the, the fact is, it's a creation of 
many incarnations that have brought you and I to this place that we even realize that such a being could exist, that awakened heart can exist. This is way beyond this lifetime of thinking I'm going to get grace. It is really part of the fabric of evolvement over many, 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 many lifetimes. And here we are. And that's another way in which you can kind of look at it and go, there's no way I would have gotten here had I not had faith. But as I said, you can't, there's nothing to think about, but that is a reality. So yeah, trust still has a, an edge to it. Like you can stop trusting faith. If you don't stop, you know, there's no doing with faith. It is. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I appreciate that explanation. You mentioned Judeo-Christianity, and I want to touch on that because I know Maharaji talked about, you know, this connection, Hanuman and Christ are one, and there's also some similarities in terms of these discussions of miracles with Maharaji. You know, I'm curious, how do you interpret some of the stories about, say, Jesus from the Bible? I mean, there are a lot of stories about miracles with him, such as turning water into wine or walking on water. I mean, do you view those as strictly metaphors? No. And I guess you do not. No. Okay. No, because Maharaji did those same kind of things. Right. I mean, some of those accounts were, I mean, there's stories of turning, you know, water from the Ganges in the milk and things like that. I mean, that's a very similar story to Jesus turning water into wine. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, the one I'm more familiar with, because we hung out with the people, the Indians who were elder to us, who had spent tremendous amounts of time with him and sometimes just with him and maybe, you know, a couple of the Ma's, Siddhi Ma. And this one man in particular, his name is K.C. Tuari. We're actually doing a documentary film about him. He was a powerful yogi in his own right, but he was with Maharaji in the most miraculous circumstances. And he would tell us these some of these stories that, I mean, blow your mind. But one of them, I mean, directly happened to him, not something he was told by anyone. So they were really powerful. And one of them was that uh, Maharaji was conducting a festival called a Bandara, where he would feed people. And, you know, they would order, get the, the, the ghee, clarified butter and the rice and the, and the flour and, you know, the vegetable, whatever they need to do it. And at one point, his person who was managing the whole thing comes to him and says, we just looked at the tins, the ghee, they, they weren't delivered. We don't have ghee. We can't make this bandara right at the last hour. And Maharaji told K.C. Tuari, get those tins over there, fill them up with water. Just do that and leave them there. And he did that. And then he told the people half hour later to, okay, I think the ghee's here now. Go check it out. And they went and, and those tins were full of clarified butter. And, you know, we saw this stuff. I mean, I, I didn't see that, but him telling me was like, you know, you telling me right now that your computer is on. I know that because, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you, and if it wasn't on, I wouldn't be able to do this. So no different than that. So why Christ? Yeah, it's all real. And it, it doesn't even, after a while, we were just like, okay. Of course, we wanted the stuff to be done to us because it's thrilling and and it assuages more doubt or, you know, whatever the mind wants to create. 
cynicism, skepticism, you know, oh yeah, do it to me one more time. But eventually, you know, we, we got to see that's not what it's about. That He just did that to completely break our minds. And he did what he did with these people. Partially, I would imagine it was more than just blowing their minds because nobody knew about it except two people, KC and the guy who said there was no ghee and maybe the cook. And then he said, no, it's arrived here. He didn't say, only Tuari knew what he did, only Tuari. And it was to feed the people. And the same thing with Christ. He needed to feed loaves and fish, whatever he did, right? He needed to do it, so he did it. And at the same time, it gave people faith. So, yeah. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you for humoring my persistent line of skepticism and questioning. I'm conscious of your time, Raghu, and so I know we're about at the 45-minute mark, so I want to thank you, and I also want to give you an opportunity to let folks know about your podcasts and Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and where they can find you and all that good business. Yeah, uh, Love, Serve, Remember Foundation was set up to continue the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba and Ram Dass and all of the people that were in India at that time came back and are offering and sharing whatever wisdom that they have. And uh, you experienced it, of course, at, uh, at the retreat. So at Love, Serve, Remember Foundation is the umbrella for Ramdas.org, where you can find tons of Ramdas talks and be great. Go sign up and put your email into uh, Ramdas.org and you'll get the announcements of all. We do a lot of great things as books and films and online courses and and you can get like the retreat that Adrian was at. We are when what was that retreat? What when was that? That was in December with Jack. Just this past December? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we are going to make that available that into all of those sessions, which and there was some tremendously great sessions. Jack's session on Saturday morning was spectacular. And that's all going to be available through Ramdas.org. I think as a stream that's you know free and maybe the downloads you gotta pay for, but the stream you don't. And it's just, you know, we ask, it's all, everything we do, it's a nonprofit. So it's all people donating whatever they can to support us. So that's Ramdas.org. And Be Here Now Network is the podcast network with Jack Kornfield and Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and myself with Mind Rolling, amongst other people that we have. Roshi Halifax does guest podcasts for us. So that is a great place to go to get incredible teachings in a very, shall we say, convivial atmosphere, like this kind of chat, right? And rather than any kind of dogmatic type lectures or anything like that. Not that Ram Dass himself ever did anything like that. And yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. And, you know, I also, I do a, a podcast with Ram Dass where I, Either I do a live thing with him, not live, but a, something with him from Maui. It's called Ramdas Here and Now, and you can really get a feeling for Ramdas as he is right now. Everything that Ramdas used to talk about pointed to the truth. And now that elucidates, although he still comes up with amazing, pithy wisdom, but he can't elucidate it. He can't, in detail, go through teachings like he used to. But he is more or less the teaching now than he ever was before. And I think, Adrian, you would uh, vouch for that. 
having seen him. Absolutely. So that's a wonderful podcast. So that's on BeHereNowNetwork.com. And you just go there and you can subscribe or you can just listen on site like you can with Adrian's podcast. I have, we have a ton of stuff going on. And I'm just lucky, 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 lucky to be involved working on, on this stuff. You know what I mean? Thank you to those of you who are still listening. I'm thinking of people in the audience in particular who perhaps like me are skeptics, are scientifically minded, are people who might struggle a little bit with encountering some of the claims and stories that Raghu or other people share about someone like Neem Karoli Baba. But I also have to say that I can totally affirm what I said to Raghu was what I really meant. You know, I, I definitely was in the presence of these people, meaning Ramdas and Raghu and Krishna Das and the, a lot of these other great teachers who were around Neem Karoli Baba. And without a doubt, I trust that what they were saying is true, is what they really experienced. And my logical mind doesn't know what to make of that, other than the fact that I'm happy to trust my intuition here and say that I believe those things happened. And I think there's too much to it. There simply are way too many stories from way too many people, including many credible sources, including many people we can talk to now who experience those things time after time. And so while I definitely appreciate and agree with Raghu's point that the, the miracles, the stories aren't the main point, you know, the main point is the underlying message of love. And that is what we should focus on and take away. Obviously, these stories about some of these miracles, if we want to call them that, are, are astounding. And they have major implications for the way that we view the world and what we think is possible. You know, I share these thoughts out loud and sort of the way I wrestle with them in part for other people who are also people who are scientifically minded or rationally minded and they're open to spirituality or contemplative practices or religion, but they, they struggle with some of these things. For me, I will say that coming across these stories and listening to Raghu actually isn't too hard to accept now. It would have been a lot tougher for me a year ago, but you know, after having experiences that I've had with ayahuasca, which those of you who listen regularly are familiar with. If you want to read more about those experiences, by the way, they're on my blog, adrianbakeryoga.com, where I wrote a number of long blog posts about my experiences with ayahuasca. And after having those experiences, I'm just a lot less sure about what I know about the way the world works. And that doesn't mean that I've now found something else and I, I said, oh, now I see the light. I've experienced the divine because, you know, I've had ayahuasca. I think that's a trap as well that you have to be careful of. But it's definitely given me a sense of humility and it's definitely made me a lot less certain about what I know. And it's, it's definitely made me a lot more open to other ideas and viewpoints and to the notion in general that there is so much out there that we still don't understand beyond what the human mind can possibly ever comprehend. It certainly comprehends now. And I think that's very frustrating, frankly, to a lot of scientific materialists or to a lot of other people 
out there who fancy themselves to be people who base things off of evidence and are very rational, but the moment that start to encounter significant pieces of evidence that they can't explain that doesn't fit in with their scientific materialist worldview, that makes them uncomfortable. And so that's something I notice as well. And, and that's not a trap I'm interested in falling in either. So my conversation with Raghu and, and reading the stories of Neem Karoli Baba is something I'm a lot more open to now and something that I do have trust in, as Raghu said. I appreciate that distinction he made between trust and faith. And perhaps that's a takeaway that some people can have, even if you don't consider yourself a person of faith. Perhaps you can think about the role of trust in your own life. So I thank Raghu for sharing his wisdom. He has definitely got a lot of wisdom to share. And I really enjoyed my conversation with him. And I hope you did as well. And for those of you who are interested in learning more, I'd encourage you to check out Ragu's podcast, the Mind Rolling Podcast, or to go to the Be Here Now Network and listen to any number of the great shows that they have on there. Listening to Krishna Das in particular is is someone who I really enjoy listening to. Jack Cornfield is another person I'm grateful to call a teacher of mine. And he has many of his episodes on there. And to, uh, yeah, check out the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. And, and for anyone who has the ability to do so, I'd highly recommend going to one of the retreats on Maui that Ram Das and friends holds twice a year. Next one's coming up in May. So thank you so much for listening. I'd love to hear from you once again. If you're out there and you're enjoying the show or if you want me to have new guests on or cover new topics, please Drop me a line, hackingtheself at gmail.com, at hackingtheself on Twitter, or the Hacking the Self Facebook page. Thank you so much, and I'll speak with you again soon. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.